0: Heads up, peers! For the first time ever, the Peers Project is going to be teaching you our go-to podcasting system that we use to create podcasts for iconic brands like Forever New and Body. That's right. We've just launched our signature course, Podcast Power 101. It has all of our behind-the-scenes secrets on how to start and launch a professional podcast, including how to craft a powerful podcast concept that will immediately position you as the go-to expert in your industry, our go-to podcasting equipment and recording system to easily create high-quality recordings with no confusing tech involved, our tried and tested podcast marketing strategies to attract your ideal listeners and automatically make your podcast a raging success, plus so much more. Now is your time to finally start your podcast, peers, and share your message with the world. So head straight to the link in this episode's description and sign up now for Podcast Power 101 at our special pre launch price. But hurry, peers, we're closing the doors on this special deal soon, so be sure to take action ASAP. Now, let's get into this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We've all heard the saying winners never quit and quitters never win. Well, peers, after this episode, you may want to throw that mantra out the window. I'm so excited to welcome Maureen Tangai onto the show today. Maureen is the founder of MT Art Agency, the world's first ever talent agency for visual artists. She's a force to be reckoned with and a 2018 Forbes 30 Under 30 listee. So today's conversation is absolutely fascinating because Maureen takes the idea of quitting and flips it completely on its head. We dive deep into why we need to redefine our ideas of quitting, how we can navigate the naysayers and how we can attract the best minds in the business. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now. Post it to your Instagram story and tag us at the Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the amazing Marine Tanguy. Marine. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today.
1: Oh, thank you so much, but I'm very excited to.
0: Of course. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected over LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all of the phenomenal work you're doing in the business and the art space, I knew I had to, you know, have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Oh, well, thank you so much. It means a lot. So, yeah, thank you because I I look up to you as well. Oh, I
0: love that. Well, cool. So, look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, So I built the 1st talent agency for visual artists. So it's a bit what you have in music, film and sport, where you spot the best, most talented artists and then you make sure that they get really successful. Um, And now we have offices in London, Paris, Madrid and Monaco as well.
0: Amazing. Oh my goodness. I cannot wait to dive in deeper into the business and the agency. Um, but before we do, I'd like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life? your career so far?
1: I grew up in Ré, which is a tiny island off the west coast of France. And it has 6,000 people a year. So it's really, really small. I think the way it impacted me, you know, I definitely was someone that didn't want to stay. I feel like it showed me that like um, being stimulated intellectually having diversity of people around me mattered um and I couldn't get that where I was from I think the appreciation of aesthetics and visuals come from the fact that it's a beautiful island so I'm someone that needs beauty I think and I need inspiring visuals around uh from that childhood um also having got very few people around means that like you have to dive into yourself. You have to dive into books, into your reflection, um, which is a good thing because I got to kind of basically ask myself a lot of key questions.
0: I love that. I think it's so valuable to understand kind of, you know, what were the drivers in those really early days when we were growing up? You know, so for you, what were some of those key questions that you had to ask yourself?
1: I think, that you know, I think, first of all, I come from a quite a tough background childhood-wise, so I don't think it was more... I don't think I was the kind of person that was asking myself a lot of questions. I think I was sadly faced with a lot of challenges. So um, my dad was violent, and so therefore I had to kind of restructure why and and how I could survive it. So I think I, I developed a, a, a way to deal with things that were challenging really early on. I don't think it was um, out of nature. I think it was more out of the context. But, you know, like fast forward many years later, that resilience is definitely something that um, makes me a good entrepreneur. So in a weird way, it's not a bad thing. But I think as a child, I was faced with a lot of, um, of challenges. I didn't have a childhood where I could think as a child. Um, I had a childhood where I was back and forth with the adult, home, you know, being an adult and, and, and having to understand um, why sometimes it didn't work out.
0: I so appreciate you sharing that with us and it is, it's just so, it's just so interesting how sometimes these, you know, these terrible things that happen when we're children, they often play out in later in life, you know, and for you, it's the resilience being an entrepreneur and what you've built. So, you know, kind of then after, you know, you made it through your kind of childhood and you were heading into, you know, teenage years and then university, I saw that you were, you know, you did study in France and then some study in the UK and you didn't you didn't finish either degrees or whatever it was and talk to us a little bit about that time there in your late teens early 20s.
1: So I feel you know again I don't come from a stable background so I don't come from parents that could ever advise me you know now that I'm a mum I think it makes a huge difference I think to kind of be able to kind of go for advice. So in a weird way, on the one hand, I did exactly what I wanted, because I was not guided, there was no advising. Um, so every time that I lacked something, I went for it, every time I didn't like something, I didn't go for it, and I stopped. And and I was very much built on those use principles. So if I felt that it was not suiting my principles, then I would stop, you know. So, uh, but that's also because I didn't have parents to tell me, you should think about it or this is the consequences or so in in a weird way i've literally led exactly life the way I wanted it at every stage um which is which is great because I don't have many regrets I think um if any, and it also meant that by seventeen I was financially independent as well so it's a very different way to kind of experience your teens and and your studying when it comes to my studying I think it's I felt that the, my first degree kept on telling me that the only the only role or job role I could have at the end was to be a professor. And I love my philosophy degree, but I didn't want to be a professor. Obviously, being a professor is fantastic. It's just not something that I wanted. And then the for the second one, I didn't like the way they they taught art i thought it was you know they taught art as something very dead and for me like it's, it was something very alive now i think in, in full stupidity of my early 20s i could have finished boss degree but obviously being principal 20s with no parent advising or adult advising then i explained why i was leaving in long letters of principles um and left but you know, it's definitely built to character because I think in a weird way, I never had, I always had to pick up my own consequences. I always had to understand my own consequences and and repair the mistakes I made. There was nobody else that would repair any of the mistakes I made. So as much as, of course, I think this is a bit silly because I could have just finished it and, and that was it. In in another way, like I feel I understand now fully the consequences of every action, um, because specifically because I, this is the way life had to be led. So, again, it's not a negative. As an entrepreneur, you are constantly um, having to make decisions and having to face the consequences if they go wrong. And in a weird way, like I was exposed to this really early on because there was nobody else pick up, picking up the pieces for me.
0: So fascinating. Talk to us a little bit about. I just want to dive a bit deeper into you were financially independent by 17. That's incredible. Was that just you were working? If so, what jobs were you doing? Like, how did you make that happen?
1: So um, at 12, um, I basically, um, so there's a few things. I mean, it's good to mad. But at 12, I basically recognized that the way the visitors uh, were advertising um, at the bakery, because this is where the main marketing was going on, where I was from, was in black and white so I made little colourful advertising to take care of kids and then on top of doing that bit of marketing which I didn't know was marketing then I also offered um, an activity per session so I said if you give me your kids, I will be baking a cake with them or I will be, you know, making something, basically. So every time we're meeting, I'll be making something. And I'll spend time downloading things from the internet on what they could be making. Luckily, my island in the summer is very touristic. So there's a lot of wealthy Parisians and English people who, um, who will come and stay. So I at 12, I was looking after kids in, you know, those beautiful villas with ridiculous kind of setup of life and incredibly well-paid um on the back of it and I think it it helped me in a few ways it helped me socially climb because I got exposed to how those people behaved because it was not my background you know like we didn't grow up in that wealth or in those ways of doing things so I understood that like silly things like they had jobs like publishers, or they were working in the arts, or things like this. And I thought that's really interesting because in my, in where I came from, there was only teacher or doctor, or you know things that were very. So I actually learned from observing, and and it, ironically, taking care of their kids kind of got me exposed to what it meant to be from a different background, and and what that other background could actually offer. Plus, having got um, having got financial independence very early on, and. And then I was by seventeen. I was giving jobs to other people as well. Out of this, um, I mean, I still love kids. It, it was not like I think in a weird way. I've I've always looked after my little sister, and it's always something that felt very natural to kind of be looking after um, after other kids. But it, yeah, I was I was wearing um, really nice clothes that I was buying myself at that age, you know. Uh, which felt very empowering. And, and I think it felt empowering even more that, I, you know, I didn't have supportive parents and I didn't have people who made me feel valuable. So I think maybe early on, I realized that my freedom was what could make me feel valuable. And I kind of went and got my freedom um, so that I felt, again, um, a sense of value for myself, which I couldn't find um, in in my family, I think.
0: Wow. It's... It's just so great. Like, it's just so fascinating to hear. I think it makes a lot more sense than kind of what you've done and then, you know, even even like kind of moving on from there, I saw that you, you managed your first gallery at 21 years old. You know, talk to us a little bit about how that came to be. You were initially just working with the kids and then, you know, kind of studying on the side. You know, talk to us about that progression to managing, you know, your gallery so young.
1: Yeah, I feel, but this is what's interesting is, I mean, I haven't told that story of taking care of the kids for a long time, but I feel convincing a parent at 12 that you can take care of their kids when you're still a kid, basically, it requires self-confidence, you know, it requires to kind of project that you are an adult. And and I feel I, I had this, I had this skill to say, you can trust me. I will be in charge and I will be okay, you know? So I feel this is definitely something that later on when I had decided, so when I left, when I quit my first degree in France, I started again as an au pair in England and then took on an internship at BBC at the same time. And then this is how I started a second degree in history of art and very quickly basically got jobs and and kind of entered the sector but I feel this never left me that I could shake someone's hand and say I can do it and the thing is I generally am someone if I shake your hand I will work so hard um to over deliver what I have promised to you because I don't have the arrogance to think that this is just me telling you something I know I have to also do it so it's 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 I feel like it's it's helped Selling really expensive art when, frankly, I didn't have any clue about um, the sector yet, and it helped convincing, you know, my first boss, Steve Lazarides, who had spotted Banksy and JR, that I could manage a gallery at twenty-one, and then it helped um, convincing then uh, my first business partner that I could own my own gallery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And but I feel I feel like um, again we, and I'm sure we all like this. I feel like a duck about it, where. I am stressed, I'm anxious, and I lack confidence at times like everybody else, but I wouldn't project it. And then by the second I get the agreement that I will work extra hard to match what I have said I will be doing. And even if it's things that I don't actually know, then I will quickly catch up so that I can actually do what I promise I will be doing. So, um, And I haven't done that my whole life because in I had to kind of be ahead of my years to kind of do what I wanted to do anyway. So... Um, I'm very used to project and then have to work it out very quickly to then deliver it.
0: So interesting, you know. I think you hit such a such a good point there around. So many of us are we feel kind of intimidated we feel we lack confidence we think oh can I actually do it and we unfortunately a lot of us project that on you know in the situation you know what advice would you give to our peers out there listening you know maybe they've they're going for a job or they're they're starting a business that's a little bit more difficult than they anticipated it's a bit more out of reach and they're struggling to kind of believe in themselves and have that self-confidence what advice would you give
1: well, I think that's um, that's what I said in the sense that, like, you know, you can always say that you can do more than your uh, your years, but then you have to work, the, like, do all the extra work after that, you know. Like, being a younger babysitter, I had to kind of download all those ways to kind of create activities and, and do all this extra work. And and I think being a younger Gary manager had to extra do things um from my peers so i think as long as you uh you kind of prepared to do the extra work then i think you should definitely pitch yourself higher but then just obviously don't just pitch then just match it with the reality by the second you obtain it because it is about trust everybody loves kind of giving a hand to a young person that is very ambitious it's a anyone who's worked incredibly hard is dying. Like I know now in my position that every time I see someone very ambitious and young, I get so excited because you know, you remember yourself trying to make it happen. So uh, as an older person now, you do know that the person is partially bullshitting you and not telling you the full truth, but the trust goes that you think they actually will deliver it. And And that is, I think that's why maybe people don't understand. It doesn't really matter what you say at that point. It matters that the delivery that you will, the commitment you have made, you will actually execute. That is where the trust is being built. So as long as you show that for everything that you pitch yourself higher than you should, um, you then over over deliver, then there's nothing wrong with that. It's just basically you trusting your instinct that you can do it, which is different than being arrogant or or kind of pitching higher for something that you're not capable of doing. I think it's just, you know, feeling confident that you can actually deliver it and you can figure things out and you will work until you figure things out.
0: How can we better trust our instincts?
1: How do we? What do you mean? How do we trust people? How do we? How, make we, how people do we trust better, us better
0: trust our instincts? It's like trust ourselves and know that we're going to do- over deliver. Yeah. What do you think about that?
1: I I feel like it's interesting because it does come with experience. Like I've had through this, this confinement, um, I'm very lucky that the business has kept on striving, but I've had to handle two very bad conflicts basically. And, you know, my confidence in handling conflicts in knowing that I can talk about them. I can, because, um, you know, we have done what is right to do in the way we've handled them has grown. And I think everything always grow with time. I feel, and, and that's why, as a young person, you just need to kind of build experience. As a real confidence is built on the fact that you remember having handled something that was difficult, but you went through it and, and you were fine. That is that is where real confidence is built from. Um, of course, like, I started, at like, super young, having to build this because I was faced with a family that was sadly, um, you know, not healthy for a kid. But I feel... After that, like everything in life can be where you build confidence. If a boy splits up with you and you handle it well and then you strive after it, then it is a way to kind of build confidence.
0: Amazing. So I completely agree. I think, you know, it is really finding that confidence within us and then kind of pushing forward. So look, I want to do a bit more of a deep dive into your time in LA, um, you know, starting your first, owning your first gallery at 23. You know, firstly, how did that, Um, opportunity come about and yeah what was that time like for you?
1: So um, one day in the gallery I used to run in London an investor who became my my future business partner walked in and he had just gone to another gallery just before me where he was barely addressed and the girl had barely spoke to him and then he walked in and obviously I was very chatty which I am always am and then I offered to kind of give him a free book because he was also going to be buying a couple of works. And then he just said, the way you go about talking about art and, and the way you kind of make it more accessible and, and more welcoming is a lot the way I believe art should be. And he said, you know, I'm looking to open a gallery in Los Angeles. I would like to put money into it. But realistically, you could have." but had me setting up the the, the gallery and kind of importing artists into it and making sure that, you know, that you have uh, the right crowd kind of trusting us, etc. So it was a bit surreal because uh, six months later, I did um, open this enormously big gallery in Beverly Hills and and then lived in Hollywood Hills. And um, on the opening night, we had a lot of celebrities like Demi Moore who... Came to the game to the opening. So it was being projected into a celebrity and LA world uh, from such a young age, which I felt was like, yeah, d- definitely something that I did not see um, coming when I was running my gallery and I was still had my little bicycle at the time. And it was, you know, very grand. I feel again like I'm very curious and I got curious about. One made los angeles had these these people became famous had had does one uh built reputations like this had does one uh built agencies for backing them and then I got very lucky that I got to meet someone who built one of the biggest high agencies in the world called c a a which is michael lovevit um and when michael when I met michael, I think what was interesting is that he was not obsessed with fame. He was obsessed with spotting the right people and building up the reputation, the right reputations for them. And meanwhile, he had been behind the career of a Steven Spielberg or a Tom Cruise. So he had, you know, he was one of the most powerful person in, in Hollywood in the 80s, 90s. So I was interested in, in how, in his mind, it was all about just spotting the right drive, the right ambition, the right talent, and then making sure that this puts into the machine of the agency that was going to accelerate and establish a reputation, this will be successful. And, you know, as much as I was lucky to have this huge gallery in Beverly Hills, I was sat at my desk waiting for one or two collectors to come a day. And, you know, what Michael was talking about was being on the ground every day to pitch your talent to all types of people. And I felt that is a lot more my personality than someone that is sat at a desk waiting for the opportunities to come. It's, it feels like it, it doesn't feel really aligned with who I'm trying to become as a person. So that was basically, I realized that the art the world didn't have any talent agencies and and I started talking to my clients and and. My artists and they were all like this sounds like a really lovely idea um it seems that like the artists will be better managed and better supported and be offered more resources through that it also means that like it was not just about selling their artworks i could also be building brand collaborations and public art projects i would really kind of build their reputation in a much more rounded way and kind of be thinking of what does fame means for a visual artist like how how does that, what does that actually mean? Which is interesting as well, because my, my passion is always, how do I make visual artists more famous so that your young kids also get exposed to art in a bigger way? So that's all the things I kind of picked up from LA. And then I decided to therefore I split again. So it was like double split up for my degrees and then my first business partners. And then I split again and then, and then I came back and funded the agency. I just want to say that though it's been five years of stability and and my life is now stable, and I am not splitting from people anymore but it is I think my early twenties where you know it's interesting because again, having not got a stable background family wise I was also okay leaving things that were not for me, which I think many people will be thinking that's crazy, like you already have so much that you should be happy with but every time I was just like, it's just not right, which is, you know, I'm I'm lucky that I was right in that sense that like now I do love what I'm doing and I would not want to be leaving it. And, and I love the company that we are building and, and therefore, yes, I have no intention to quitting anything. So, but I think I was someone that had to feel it was a hundred percent right um, until I could dedicate clearly the long-term into it.
0: I think it's so interesting. And I think, you know, I think we have this negative connotation around quitting. You know, I think it's like people are like, oh, you're a quitter. You know, you, you just can't stick at it. You know, but I love how you've kind of shed light on like, well, if it's not right, and if you, you know, I don't feel like it's a hundred percent, like why would I keep going? You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening around quitting and knowing when to quit and when not to quit?
1: Yeah, so I feel first of all there are ways in which you can quit nicely. Um I was I was very dramatic when I was young. Um and so I feel that is not a nice way to quit, you know. I would say that, you know, the recent conflict I handled the confinement with one of my talents, I mean I have grown so much. I quit with kindness, with thinking of the long term, with thinking of the other party as well. So, you know, you gotta kind of make sure you set the expectations that you keep on speaking to the other party that maybe things have to change, but there's no dramatic ending, suddenly I'm quitting, um, which I think, I think being a tiny bit older, you do learn that it is a small world and that therefore the better you quit, if you want to quit, then the better you can also go back and or mend the relationship if needs be in your next job or adventure. So I would definitely say that there are there are better ways to quit and there's a process in which you can be kind of nicely quitting. Um, I think after that, you know, I still spent a year and a half into my first job. I, I, I wouldn't recommend quitting after three to four months. I think, like, you need to still have, you know, although I have done a lot, I still had, you know, one, you know, one and a half years to two years every time before I felt, you know, what, this is not working out. But it was never me kind of quitting after the first challenge. It was more, you know, I was I kept on going until I felt, okay, this is not right, So I have had um, employees like quitting after three months um, and thinking, "Okay, now I can run the world, um, and that doesn't work that way, so you do need to put a bit of time in and then be you know and then if you want to change, you want, you, you can change also, I think back to the dramatic thing. There's nothing wrong with quitting, and that is the thing is that you can make it wrong if it's seen as aggressive if it's seen as rejecting you as a person, but I think just saying in the same way that in a relationship, saying that like you 're not aligned anymore is a lot and, and, and being explanatory around it it's obviously a lot nicer than just leaving one day or, or kind of giving no explanation. so I feel for me it's not really quitting that I've learned about it's more doing it in full respect of the other party so that the other party doesn't feel anger or sadness or hate which there's just simply no reason to be leaving hate behind you um if you want to move on
0: it's just so well said and so many great takeaways in that amazing so i want to talk about then you know the business so put the others aside and you were like, this is what I think I'm going to do now. You know, you moved back to Europe. Did you, I think it was in Lond- London. Moved London, back to London. Yeah. London, yeah. So moved back there and was like, okay, let's do this. You know, what were some of the early challenges you faced getting mtr off the ground and kind of what were those first few steps that you took?
1: I feel, well, there's so many because, you know, I was I was very young and I was very ambitious as well. So you know, most people who go and they up their own company, they do it according to it the traditional model, which is the gallery. And they do not on top of this, tries to disrupt and change the sector, because I think it's hard enough owning a company. But if you also kind of try and change the sector, it's, it's extremely hard. But I feel, so in a one, I really believe in the idea. I was drastically lacking confidence, I think, when I started it, because... I was scared, I was young, I was broke, and now I was completely unknown. which felt like a setback because um, I had been used to working with other people, and then for the first time, that's all I could see was me kind of having to do it. So that's definitely something that's, again, it's, it's, I was, as much as it was tough back then, it's also what gives me the confidence, like I know that if tomorrow everything collapsed, I can still pick up the pieces and do it, you know? And and that's definitely a different type of grounding and, and confidence in yourself from that uh, period. Sadly, because I was disrupting the sector, um, I had a lot of attacks. I had a lot of people who didn't like me. Because, you know, I can understand, you have 90% of the sector are people who are coming from very uh, wealthy um, uh, families. And and then i come from a non wealthy family and on top of this i'm saying i want things to change and that's arrogance for them it's like who are you like why why do you think you can do that so there was i think i received a lot of hate and i because i don't think i was that relatable first of all because i was from the few that did not come from wealth and also i think i had a vision fuel and ambitious that ambition that i think was very different to a lot of people in my sector. So I think the lack of me being relatable out of it, and and I was like a train charging. My boyfriend always say that, like, I basically, I keep going, which if if we ever get into a conflict together, this is going to be the most irritating thing ever because it doesn't matter how many knocks, then the more things I get tapped, the more I'm like this, and the more I basically lead and lead and lead the company to be okay, which is, I think, a survival instinct to be like okay we are under attack almost so we have to kind of charge double in terms of speed and make sure that the company is fine which is great in business but I think as a woman it's very petrifying because it's like a woman is meant to be pleasing and lovely and nodding and and I'm not that I am someone that's very like this and And especially if something goes wrong, I'm even more like this. So I think I didn't suit the the profile that I think my sector wanted a woman to be. And I think wanted an entrepreneur to be. But, you know, it's, first of all, I can't be anybody else. I think it's just the answer. I think it's, and also I think I have learned to be overtly explanatory to that nature. So, you know, the English here don't confront when there are issues. The French are very direct. If there's an issue, we ring someone and we say, look, we don't understand what this is going on. Can we please have a chat? This is our way to kind of deal with things. And I think there was also a cultural clash because in England... You know, first, your aristocracy and your monarchy is ruling it. And and I'm not from the aristocracy or the monarchy. Second, women, most women, after they, they have a child here, stop working, it's very conservative in the role of the woman. And second of all, like, you're really rely on your family. It's all about the tra- tradition. And I was basically changing all of this. Plus, I was also not graduated. I, I also had decided to quit my degree. So everything that an English person would need to put me on the map and want to relate with me was not there. Um, I had I had kind of gone the exact opposite way to most people in that sector. So I do recognize how this can be something that you don't understand. I do feel that it was very unfair because I think... They made me out as a monster. What well, realistically you're just a young girl trying to make things happen. Like it's no there's no monster about it. It's just that like you are surviving and you need to survive. And that's it's and I think most people in my sector don't need to survive and I needed to survive. So I feel that's just more what happened. And I would say that like, yeah, it it was harsh on a twenty-five years old girl, I think. That that was I think the the answer.
0: Mm. How, you know, if we're in a position where people are hating on us and we just, maybe maybe we understand it like you did, like we understand why, but at the same time we feel it's unjust, it's unfair, you know, how can we just navigate through that? How do we push past that?
1: I think, like, there's there's a few points. It's a good question. I think it's something that I think I'm slowly getting there at. One, I feel is being outspoken about it, not in a way of, shaming people or threatening people, but more in a way to be factual. I think when someone attacks us or hate on us, there's a degree of which we feel shameful. Um, we feel there's something that I have done wrong to be hated, right? And that is a feeling we need to stop having. Of course, if you've done something wrong, then you need to have it. But if you haven't done something wrong, then you need to quickly speak out about actually what the facts are. Because the thing is, is like, you know, as I said, I'm someone that's charging and not relatable, you know, I did not take a maternity leave. And I did loads of things in which this is not relatable, because I work more than the average person, and I care a lot more than the average person. So I'm already not in the relatable category. So if on top of this, I don't over explain um, what factually has gone on, it's very easy to believe that I'm the person that is Booting or the monster in the situation, right? Because I look much stronger than the person that's going to kind of accuse me as. So I think being factual and and speaking out in a nice way about the other person, but saying, this is what happened. I don't ask you to take a side, because I never ask people to take sides. I always just offer my version of the story, because otherwise, the other person, like, I work really hard, so I don't have time to gossip. So the other person who works less hard, and who is attacking, will have that time to extra gossip, and extra making up facts. So staying factual is one thing. I think the... The user thing is on the hate. I think it's it's understanding that users don't fit what society wants you to be, and I think just being okay with this. And I'm saying this having a skin color that is still apparently what society wants to see. So I'm still ex- I'm still very privileged in the um, situation and the setup that society wants me to see, but a young mother holding her kid like this and still running a company as intensely and still doing things like this is clearly not what a woman is yet meant to be, right? Um, so I think you just also have to let like, go to a degree of it that by the second you're challenging the norms of society, then hate does come. Um, and, and it comes, and I think that's the saddest part, it also comes from women um, as much as men. You know, In a weird way, men can tend to be more supportive because I think the way I lead my company is sometimes more masculine in, in, a, in a weird way. So I feel I sometimes have easier relationships um, at work than I think a woman who may have never confronted anything, may never have been direct when there was an issue, and then me having a much more direct approach. But I feel as long as you explain, as long as you don't, you're not nasty and you're not trying to attack people, um, but you're overtly explanatory, I think you can't long-term people just always come back and that's another thing with conflict I've seen so many people who have hurt but then did get back a few years down the line you just got to accept that like your role is not to please and also by the second that you are challenging and you are doing more it is challenging people and challenge it does come with weird reactions attached to it I think
0: so well said it's it's just so true amazing so I want to s- slowly start to get through it and start to wrap up. But, you know, it's just so interesting that I keep wanting to ask you questions. I think just, I guess, from there, then those early challenges and facing all that hardship, you know, how did you then grow the business? Like talk to us about the growth of the business over the last five years and how you kind of navigated through that growth.
1: So basically, I, I mean, I'm incredibly ambitious. For MCL, so I want us to be the number one talent agency for for the art world. Um, And basically, if you ever want to kind of look for the most exciting visual artists, you'll come to us. If you ever want to kind of buy an artwork that's really inspiring or kind of partner up with projects and artists, you will come to us. So, and I want to work with the top talents that matter. And that is, it's always been day one ambition, whether I had money or not. You know, it was always, that's what I wanted. So I feel... First, I was very set up on that vision, and I never compromised that vision. I was never wanted something halfway. It was it was going to be it, and it's the same way that I pitched it since the first day of it, which I think helps implementing the growth of it. Then I think it's um, MTR is just about having great people on board. It's about having great talents and having a team and, and clients and partners are going to trust you and trust your team to basically implement the craziest projects and, and work with most talented artists. So I feel, you know, my core my core strengths and, and and my daily is to convince people and to build trust, is to get the top people on board. And, and to have this. So, I think the growth of MTR is that it's a community of people who is constantly growing with very good brains on board, with very exciting people on board who therefore believe in their vision. And during the confinement, we we announced that, like Frederic Jousset, who is the biggest patron of Le Louvre, so he built a company called WebHelp, who is worth 2.4 billion. And he is now one of our um, key advisors. And I feel that's the thing where we always said we wanted the top brains. And I, my director in Paris was the youngest to do you what she's doing. And I would put her and him in the same level that we want the top brains. You know, we want to make sure that if you are very smart in my sector, you want to work first. If you are amazingly talented, you want to be represented by us, etc., etc., et cetera, So it's, it's believing that we can attract the best people, I think is too gross. And then that's how you end up having the best projects, um, being able to open new offices. But, you know, I invest in people. So I think for me, it's really just about convincing the top people. That's what matters.
0: How can we get better at convincing the best people in our industries, you know, that that either we're the people that you have to be working with or you need to hire us? Like, what would be your top three tips on that?
1: I think, ironically, expose your challenges. Um, Be honest on what the challenges are. So I'm not going, you know, if I come to a Fred you which I have like a few months back to convince him to come on board, um, I'm not going to say we're the top in the world yet, right? Because um, we're not yet. Like, we're definitely the number one because there's no other one on top, but we're saying to grow bigger. And he knows that. Uh, he hires 60,000 people a year, so he knows that we are not that kind of company, you know? So I think it's understanding when it's right to kind of talk about your achievements because we have many that we can talk about, but also when it's right to kind of back down and talk about your challenges and and the things. And and I think having that again back to this directness, having this eye to eye, makeup free, this is where we at, a kind of conversation. With no polish, no vanish, just just of pure reality, and this is what we want to get. Because that inspires trust, because someone that is self aware enough to know that they are positive, but there's obviously negative that I want to improve. It's going to be a good entrepreneur because first, um, it means that I would hire people that could compliment me. I won't just think I'm it, which is helpful. And second of all, it means that I can include the opinions of other people onto our vision as well. So I think ironically, showing honesty and and awareness is super, super key, especially the people who've accomplished a lot because they will want you, they will want to help you. So don't pretend that everything is perfect. It it's never is and, and it won't be uh, for a very long time. And I think I use social media, in, it's weird, it's really weird because I don't use social media to get likes or follow. I use it to build trust. And so you see, someone like him had watched me over two years. And now, what that means is that And like you said with you, and you know, that's how you build trust as well, is that you see that someone is constantly working, doing something, and they're constantly improving in that sense, you know. That is what trust is about. Trust is about people who stick at it and just constantly keep on going to kind of improve it. And and that is very much where, you know, you can get the trust of someone that's very known because they can see that, like... You keep going at it. Doesn't matter what the challenges, doesn't matter what the context is, you are someone that's very resilient. And resilience and trust and awareness are like, it's something that people look for um, when they want to put a lot of money into people or when they want to partner up with something that's very dear to them. And like, my artists have to trust me to handle their career, it's massive. So they have to trust me. My clients are part like they are spending a lot of money with us. So they again have to trust me. You know, so it's um, that consistency, that resilience, that determination, that ambition is something that is going to convince them. But you do need to be op- opening up with challenges, and that goes back with hate and things like this. You need to open up about the stuff that you are being attacked with. You can't just be saying this is all perfect first I think it will also you make you likable in their minds because they'll be like she's actually achieving all of this but she's also undergoing all of this um and I think the other way is that you're also showing that you are human after all and you need other humans to join you to kind of make sure it will last basically
0: oh just so valuable and I just could not agree more okay well wow Maureen I I wish we could keep going. I'm just absolutely fascinated by everything that you're doing and just I love how real and open you've been with us. We so appreciate you for that. You know, I've got a couple of last few questions that I want to go through, I guess. I guess, firstly, you know, what would you say has been your greatest failure personally throughout your entrepreneurial journey to date?
1: I feel it is the way I've, I've handled my first conflicts. I think that's definitely the my biggest failure, because I love and care about people that I bring on board. And, and being kind of hard-blooded French at times. And, you know, when I was younger, I think the, the way I ended it was not representative to how much I cared. In fact, it was representative, because that's the reason I ended it, because I, I just cared so much. But it just, it could have been portrayed better to show that care. And that's, you know, I think, it's never about the financial costs. It's about the human costs. And I think if you care about people and it doesn't end the way you want, then there's something that you're doing wrong. And that's why I'm happy recently that I have changed on that basis because I think it, when yeah again i do a job because i care about people so therefore uh, the the idea that this is not being represented is a failure Uh, but i'm getting there at at showing it even in time when it's difficult to show it i think i'm getting better
0: i love that and we uh, once again i so appreciate you being open with us look Maureen, over the last few years in business, you've achieved so much and you've been recognised for your work across the board. You know, in 2018, you were featured on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list. and Last year, you won the UK Entrepreneur of the Year Award for the NatWest Every Woman Awards. Um, You've done two amazing TEDx talks, and I'm not surprised, amazing speaker. But I guess, you know, what three key pieces of advice would you give to our peers out there listening and that you wish that you got when you were just getting started?
1: I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm the story of someone that kept on thinking she could do it and I ended up doing it. Definitely with lots of challenges along the way, but I still, it still happened the way my younger girl wanted it to happen. So I think that's conflicting because I think if you keep going, it does ultimately happen. It's just, you know, it takes a long time and a lot of work in. I think, as I said, it's just like, think of the human cost, just always, always think, how can I make sure that, like, um, am I communicating well? And I think the, the I wish schools were teaching social skills better because I feel that this is something that we should learn at school is how does, how do I communicate that I care about someone? How do I communicate that if there's a conflict but we disagree but we, we still can remain caring for each other? Lots of things that I would have lacked to learn. For when faced with very difficult attacks or or situations, I still acted the best possible way for the other party. So I would say social skills, just watch out your social skills. And I think the best way to watch out for your social skills is reaching out people who have more experience. Because there's one thing is, yes, there was lots of things that I was foreseeing that people who were older would not have foreseen because I had that vision and I knew that but social skills is something that you learn with experience. And someone that is a tiny bit older will be like, slow down. Don't send that email yet. Just have you thought about the consequences of saying this. Have you researched here of actually, should we build this? And that will be better. And so I feel just this is where your mom can help you. This is where your your aunt can help you. Because that's where actually someone that is older will see, you know, the emotional cost of what's about to happen. And and I feel that is the one thing is I think you can spare emotional cost by just reaching out to someone that's a bit older. And anybody else, everybody would have built that experience as they get older because they also would have had kids and they also don't want their kids to be hurt in that matter. So... Just just listen on the emotional cost. The rest you can go as fast as you want. You can make as many mistakes as you want. But I think it's that part that you can learn from.
0: So valuable, amazing. Look, Maureen, we I just want to take a moment before I ask you the last question to to acknowledge you for all of the amazing work that you've done and that you're doing, for showing us, you know, particularly us young women that so much is possible for us if we just stick at it and we keep going and we believe in our vision and our dreams. And for this, we really appreciate you.
1: That's very sweet. Thank you.
0: Of course. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is what's the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
1: I mean, it's so many values. I feel it's, um, you first you wake up every single morning and you have a reason to wake up in the morning. You know, I we just went through the confinement and I didn't, I could just get up in the morning and want to get up in the morning. And I think it's um, it's incredibly valuable. It's also you know, if you listen to any person who is seventy or eighty years old, they always tell you that like they regret not to have done the things that they wanted to do. Um, and I live life thinking I don't want to be in that position with regrets. I I want to be in a position where I would have done without regrets. Um, and I think not regretting is very important. And also, I feel like you know now being a mom, I feel like it's it's an example to your kids. Like I think it's a difficult thing to say to your kids. I am doing something that is not actually me or I'm compromising what life could have been or the values of what life could I be because you're not setting up an example for them that they can become anyone. you're saying well actually, and I'm not saying it's it's easy because of course, I understand that people who are financially restricted and um, struggle with that, and I'm not saying by any means that they are guilty of this It's just that doing what you love, I can show to my kids, you know you can become the person that you want to become it's okay. Obviously, I acknowledge my own privileges in that, but it's, it's I think, super valuable to pass on to the next generation that they can do it, you know.
0: I love it. Ah, oh, Maureen, thank you so much. It's been, we've had an absolute blast. Where can people learn more about you and MTR?
1: So we have a website, um, which is mtr.agency. Um, I think we, I'm also on Instagram though, um, and I feel big millennial. This is where all the magic happens. So um, I'm Marine Tongi Art on Instagram, and obviously the company is the MT Art Agency. Um, but don't hesitate to reach out and, and drop a note because I will always respond. I think I'm extra communicative about these things.
0: I love it. We will link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much, again, Marine. We've had a blast. And for everyone else listening.
1: Thank you so much. i really
0: Yeah. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at the we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers